Well, for those of you who have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to be in the entire chapter. So we're going to jump from chapters 3 all the way to chapter 8. And if you are able, for those of you, why don't you all stand with me? And let's read God's word together. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And it happened when Samuel was old that he appointed his son's judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after greedy gain and took bribes and caused justice to turn aside. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So now listen to their voice, however, and you shall solemnly testify to them and tell them of the custom of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of Yahweh to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the custom of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, that they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for him commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male slaves and your female slaves and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." So Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Please be seated. Well, before we look more closely at our text in 1 Samuel chapter 8, let's take a brief look just a survey of all the events that took place between chapters 3 and chapters 8. 
So you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we learned that Scripture says that the word from Yahweh was rare, but God broke through his silence and he called Samuel to be his prophet. And then we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, that the word of Samuel, which was God's word, came to all Israel. And we'll soon read in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that Samuel's prediction came true about Eli's family. And in chapter 4, we see that Israel got into a battle with the Philistines. And through that, in verse four, chapter 4, verse 11, it says that the ark of God was taken and two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So in this battle, the Israelites thought that if they would take the Ark of the Covenant with them, that somehow God would be with them and give them victory. But instead, the Philistines had victory over Israel, and they took the Ark of the Covenant. And so not only that, but Eli's two sons died. And when news of this came to Eli, it says that Eli fell off his seat backwards, and his neck was broken, and he died. And the ominous verse in chapter 4, verse 22, it reads, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. So now in chapter 5, the ark of God was now under the, the hands and possessions of the Philistines. And the Philistines stored the ark in their temple, their temple to their god, Dagon. And they left the ark there, and the next morning, they found that Dagon, their, their, their god, had fallen and his face was on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. And so the, the, the Philistines brought their, their god back up and then went to sleep. And then the next morning, the same thing happened, right? Dagon had fallen on his face and not only that, but the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold only the trunk of Dagon was left on him. And then afterwards, God started to judge the Philistines who had the ark, and he brought plagues to every single town nearby where the ark was stored. And it got so bad that the Philistines said, we can't have Yahweh in our presence anymore. And they sent the ark back to Israel and not only did they send the ark back, they, but they actually brought a guilt offering. They actually offered five golden tumors that represented the boils and the tumors that they had and five golden mice because of the infestation from God's judgment. So the ark now is returned back to the possession of Israel. Well, then in chapter 7, 20 years later, Samuel, who's now obviously a grown man, rallies Israel. And he challenged Israel and he says to Israel, destroy all your idols, all your false idols and serve God. He basically issued a call to Israel very similar to what Joshua did at the end of Joshua's life. When Joshua told the people, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And now Samuel, who was judging and ruling over Israel as, as Israel's intercessor, also served as a priest. And he offered sacrifices on behalf of Israel. 
and God heard the prayers and the cries of Israel. And God, in chapter 7, gives Israel victory over the Philistines. So the Philistines were victorious back in chapter 4, but by chapter 7, because God had not forgotten Israel and had heard the cries of Israel, God helped Israel overcome the Philistines. And it says in chapter 7, 7 verse 13, the Philistines were subdued, and thus Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And so as we close chapter 7, we see that Samuel now, again, a grown man, he's not little Samuel anymore. He became a great leader. He was a prophet. He was a priest. And he was a judge. And he led Israel to national reformation, spiritual awakening. And he was interceding for God's people. And we see here, as we look over the last 300 years up to Samuel, that there was no other judge that surpassed him in his moral excellence. And so it's at this high point, not just a high point for Samuel, but for all of Israel, that we come to chapter 8. And chapter 8 will title this lesson, The God of Israel Rejected. And we read in this chapter a sad story. A story, as you heard, did not have a happy ending. And we'll divide this story into four main sections. First, Israel demands a king. Then Israel forsakes God. Third, Israel is warned. And fourth, Israel rejects God. So if you still have your Bibles, we are in, Gen or in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 to 5, Israel demands a king. And the reason why Israel is demanding a king here in these first few verses is that even though Samuel was a great leader, there is now a crisis in leadership in the nation of Israel. And why is there a crisis? Well, there are several reasons. First, the leadership is aged. There is aged leadership. So look at verse 1. And it happened when Samuel was old. So Samuel was a great leader. He had led Israel for many, many years. But now at the start of chapter 8, Samuel is getting old. And it's great for us to have leaders, right? We, we have a great leader in the family. Maybe it's your mother and father. Uh, if you're at a church, maybe it's a pastor. But eventually... Great leaders get old, and they can't do as much of what they used to do, and sooner or later, they're going to die. And so the people recognize that our great leader, Samuel, is getting old. Some would estimate at this time Samuel was about 60 years old. Maybe he was older, but at least in, in the context of the people during this time, Samuel was old. So, but the crisis wasn't just the aged leadership. There was the nepotistic leadership. And for kids that you may not know the word nepotism, nepotism just means showing uh, maybe an undue favor to someone who's related to you, to your family. So look at what it says in verse 1. It happened when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. 
So Samuel here is contributing to this crisis of leadership. Now, obviously, he couldn't help himself but getting old. But here we see that he is appointing his sons to be judges. And up to this point, there is not a precedence to have judges uh, being appointed based on your being hereditary or being a part of your family. And in fact, Gideon, do you remember Gideon and the fleece? He was a great leader too. And Gideon rejected this idea. Gideon says in the books of Judges, I will not rule over you, nor shall my sons rule over you. Yahweh shall rule over you. So what Gideon is saying is that to the people is that we're not going to have this precedent that just because they're my sons, that my sons are going to rule over you. And in fact, there's nothing about our family that's ruling over you. It's God that rules over our country and our nation. Now, if you look in verse 2, it says that Samuel's sons were judging in Beersheba. And this is actually important because Samuel's hometown is a city called Ramah. And I think we learned from last week or two weeks ago, the city of Beersheba is the southern city of the nation of Israel. So the distance between Ramah and Beersheba is probably about 90 miles or well over 100 kilometers. So what Samuel did was he appointed his sons to be judges, to be leaders, but he, he sent them all the way to the southern part of, of the nation of Israel so that it didn't overlap with his influence in the center part, yet also they were so far away that even if they were to do things that weren't right, Samuel either may not know or he would have no easy way to directly influence or, uh, or guide uh, the, the actions of his sons. So we have aged leadership, we have nepotistic leadership. Third, we have unqualified leadership. Look at verse 3, verse 1. It says, but, but Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways. So instead of imitating the ways of Samuel, perhaps one of the most righteous, the most wise and moral judge, Samuel's sons turned out to be much like Eli's sons. Look at the second half of verse 3. They turned aside after greedy gain. They took bribes and caused justice to turn aside. And so Samuel's sons completely defied and went against God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19 says, you shall not distort justice. You should not be partial. You should not take a bribe, for a, bri a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. So uh, the Samuel's sons, because they defied God, not only were they sinning, but it would clout their ability to, to have godly wisdom and to be able to rightly rule over God's people. So we have age leadership, nepotistic leadership, unqualified leadership, which leads to rejected leadership. So we see Israel saying in verse 5, all the elders of Israel said, Behold, Samuel, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. 
Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all nations. Now this term, the elders of Israel, it probably refers to the leaders of all the families and tribes as described in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31. So basically all the heads of the household, of all the families, of all the clans, of all the tribes, they all got together and they came to Samuel and said, you're old, your, your, your sons do not follow your ways, now give us a king. Appoint us a king so that they can be like all other nations. Now, notice here that Israel doesn't completely reject Samuel. If they completely rejected Samuel, they would have just told Samuel, stand aside and we're taking over and we'll appoint for us our new leader. The, the people of Israel still said to Samuel, you are getting old. We appreciate all that you've done. And now we want your help because we don't want your sons to rule. So you, Samuel, you help us appoint a king. And I should also make another note of clarification. This desire that the Israelites have of wanting a king, uh, it in some ways isn't unacceptable. It's not irrational. And we had learned Remember when Hannah prophesied in her prayer that of a coming king, that God already says in his word that there is going to be a king that's coming that is going to rule over you. So in that sense, God had given Israel permission to, to appoint a king. And we read that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But the problem is that it wasn't just that they wanted to appoint a king. But the motive, the reason why they wanted to appoint a king is they wanted to be like all the other nations. And this becomes a lot more clear as we look at the rest of this chapter. But let me ask all of you this. Have you felt tempted or have you been tempted to follow others around you instead of following God? Right? Are, are, are there things that you see in others and you want to be popular and you want to fit in? And to do that would require following others and instead of following God? Well, that was the temptation that the people of Israel had. But remember the Bible, right? God tells us that we're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? The Bible says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So we see in these first five verses that Israel demands a king. But let's look at the second section here where Israel forsakes God. Israel forsakes God, and we see it in verses 6 to 9. Look down in verse 6. It starts, But the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel. The thing was evil in the sight of Samuel. And as you read verse 6, you see Samuel looking wounded, troubled, saddened, and hurt. He'd been serving Israel perhaps already for 40, 50 years. And he probably felt when he heard what the people were saying that we don't want you and your sons anymore, he probably felt unappreciated, rejected. And I think you understand this, right? It feels bad for us 
when, when we feel undesired or when we're told, you know, we're no longer wanted or needed, right? Have you, have you ever felt like rejected by others? Like, let's say kids, if, if, you, if your birthday's coming up and you send invitations to all your friends, inviting them to come to your birthday, and then on your birthday, none of your friends show up. I mean, imagine how sad you would be. I mean, some of you in this room, you may have experienced abandonment from a spouse or from a child. Uh, pastors can sometimes feel hurt if their members you know, start to look for another church because they're, they're discontent. And I think likewise for us, even us being here as a church, as fellow members, if, if we're hurting and we feel neglected or uncared for, in a sense, we feel uh, forgotten, rejected. And so, so Samuel hears this, that the people of Israel, they don't want him anymore. And so what does he do? Well, he says that Samuel prayed to God. So Samuel's response was he prays to God, and then notice that God responds to Samuel with these comforting words. In verse 7, then Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So, so God's reassuring Samuel and saying, don't feel hurt. Don't be discouraged. They're, they're actually not rejecting you personally. Don't take it personally. They're rejecting God. And notice the contrast here. In some ways, when you read this, you might feel comforted yourself. But I think there should be almost an indignation when you, read, you and I read this first. Because again, Samuel was serving faithfully to, 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 to Israel. He had given his whole life, right? From the moment he was born, he had been set apart to devote his entire life to this nation of Israel. And yet, it would seem like that Israel rejects Samuel. But think with me for a moment. What about God? God had been with Israel for over a thousand years. From the time that God had called Abraham, right, the father of Israel, to hundreds of years later, remembering Moses and bringing the Israelites and delivering them from bondage in Egypt. And now these several hundred years in the period of the judges, God had been with Israel for over a thousand years, and now Israel, in their high moment, God had just delivered them over these past number of years under the, 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 the strangle of the Philistines, and now they want to lay aside God and the theocratic monarchy for an earthly king. And what, what does, what does uh, God say? At the end of uh, verse 8 or verse 7, they have forsaken me and served other gods. And so I think the implication is this. Yes, it's one thing for you and I as, as men and women to feel rejected, neglected, unappreciated. 
But the grossest travesty of justice is the sovereign creator personally being rejected by his own creation. Well, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, for even though they, sinners, all this world, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. And for us here in this room, just like we learned from this morning's sermon, there's only two groups of people in this room. And that holds true for the adults and for the kids, right? You either acknowledge God and Jesus as your Lord and Master, or you reject God and you serve some other God, some sort of replacement, some sort of idol, another king. There's no in-between. And which group are, are, are you in this room today? Because the answer to the question of which group you're in will determine your final destiny. So we see here that Israel demands a king, Israel is forsaking God, and now in this third section, we see that Israel is warned. Israel is warned. And we see this in verses 10 to 18. So look what God says uh, to, to Samuel. He says in verse 9, However, you shall solemnly testify to them. Some of your English translations say that uh, God tells Samuel, you are to solemnly warn them. And this term, to solemnly testify or to solemnly warn, it's a legal expression that implies giving someone full knowledge of an action. In other words, think with me sometimes, I, I think it's true because I, I see it on TV and in movies, like if you get arrested by, by the police, like a serious crime, sometimes they'll read you, I think it's called the Miranda rights here in the United States. They warn you when they arrest you and they say to the criminal or to the person being charged, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in the court of law. So it's warning the person that they're arresting, saying you better be careful what you say because anything you say can be used against you in the court of law. And so what God is telling Samuel is that you need to warn Israel. You need to tell Israel exactly what they're asking for. And you need to make it explicitly clear so that if they don't heed this warning, they can't say they didn't know. So Israel is warned. And Samuel, in these next eight, nine verses, gives four specific warnings to the Israelites. Let's look at the first warning. Samuel warns Israel, if you do this, if you ask for an earthly king, the king will draft your young men and women for service. Look at verse 11. Then Samuel says, This will be the custom of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself in his chariot and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. This verb uh, that's translated, he will take, the, this verb is used at least four times in this passage. He will take, he will take, 
He will take. He will take. So notice what God is trying to contrast here is that I am a God who gives. If you appoint an earthly king, the king is going to be not a giver, but a taker. He will take everything that is precious to you. And the first thing he's going to take is he's going to take away or take for himself young men and young women. I think another thing that's interesting in this passage is that every time there's this idea or what's, what's described here that the king will take, it's the people and the property that the king appropriates that's in the first position of the Hebrew sentence. In other words, I could rephrase this verse as, your sons the king will take. Your daughters the king will take. So the emphasis of this passage is all the different things that your earthly king will take away from you. This idea of chariots in verse 11, chariots during this time is an instrument of war, but it's not helpful to have people running around your chariots. So when it says here that the king is going to have men run before his chariots, it's like a status symbol. It's like to show off. It's like your, your army is so strong and so powerful that you have extra men that can just run around, uh, run around the chariots. You know, sometimes if you have like a parade, like uh, uh, I, my family has never been to Disneyland, but I've been told that in Disneyland when there are parades, all right, there are these floats, you know, and sometimes if you have extra people, there's not enough room, you know, uh, on the float, so they'll, they'll walk around, right? They'll dance, they'll get the people to cheer. So, but if you don't have extra people, you only have the bare minimum, uh, probably the main people are gonna be on the float. So if you only have a few men and you have enough horses, every man is gonna get on a horse, is gonna get on a chariot. So if you have extra men, all right, then you will put them around them and it's, 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 a, it's a status symbol. It's, it's for the king to show off how great I am. And believe it or not, this is exactly what happens because David's son, Absalom, what he did was he demanded 50 runners to run before his chariots in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Notice what else the king does. He's going to take your men, right, to serve as commanders, make weapons of war and military equipment, but not just the men. I mean, it's one thing to just draft men, you know, to, uh, for your armies. But it says in verse 13 that this king will also take your daughters for perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And what this implies is that this king is not just going to take away all your young men, but he's going to take all your young daughters and for your daughters to cook food, to bake bread, and you know, to, to, uh, to make things smell good for the comforts of, uh, of the army. Like most nations now uh, here, all right, kids, that usually what happens is if we need men, if things get bad, or you know, we usually draft the men, but the, 
but the women and children stay at home. But this king, if you guys really want a king, this king is going to take away all, not just your best young men, but your best women as well. So the first warning Samuel gives to, to Israel is that you, you're going to appoint a king. He's going to draft all your young men and young women. Second, Samuel's second warning is that he's going to levy burdensome taxes. Do you guys know what taxes are, kids? So government, right, to be able to support all their operations will take money from all their citizens and everything, everyone they have rule over, and your king, your earthly king, is going to levy taxes on you. Look at verse 14. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards, olive groves, and give them to his servants. And you have to understand here, when, when you read this, th it, what, it, what God is saying is that your king is going to take much more than what he needs. This goes far beyond what's needed for the government, right? This predicts this corrupting influence of this king's power. Like the, the, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, God does command that the people of Israel are going to give a tenth of certain things so that the Levitical priests, all the priests and all of God's workers would be able to support themselves and to feed themselves. But your king is going to want more than a tenth. He is going to want the best of everything that you have, your fields, your vineyards, uh, your, and even your servants. And this, again, is exactly what happens because King Saul will fulfill this exact description to maintain his kingship when we get to chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. So he's going to take all your young men and women. He's going to tax you in a very burdensome way. Third, he's going to take your best animals and your best servants. Look at verse 16. He will also take your male slaves, your female slaves, your best young men, and your donkeys and use them for his work. So your king, your kings, they're going to take the best workers in all your families. You, you have someone in your family that's a good musician? King's going to take him. You have someone in your, 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 your family that makes, you know, a good works, woodworker, craftsman? King's going to take him. You have someone in your family that's the best cook, that can make the most delicious food? King's going to take them. All the best men, all the best property will be sequestered, not for your benefit, Israel, but it's going to be for this king's benefit. And again, this is fulfilled because what does King Solomon do? In 1 Kings 5, it says that King Solomon will use 30,000 forced laborers for his building projects. He didn't volunteer and say, hey, anyone want, you know, I'm the king, all right? I want a really nice looking, you know, house or buildings. Um, that's not what King Solomon did. It says that he forced these laborers in 1 Kings chapter 5. So we're going to take your young men and young women, taxes, 
all your best property, your best real estate, your best workers. And then fourthly, the fourth warning that Samuel gives is that your king is going to take away your freedom. Your king is going to take away your freedom. And look at verse 17. It first says that he, this, your king, will take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his slaves. I think most of you in this room understand this, right? For those of you who are citizens, residents here in the United States, you, you live in a country where the forefathers wrote a constitution that values freedom, liberty. So this king of Israel that you want He's going to make all of you, Israel, his slaves. He will take away your personal freedom and your individual liberties. So think with me again. The king's going to draft your elite men and women. He's going to levy onerous taxes. He's going to seize your prime real estate and laborers. And he's going to restrict your personal freedoms. Is this something you really want? And so what Samuel is saying is that I solemnly testify to you. I solemnly am warning you. I'm reading your rights. You have to understand that this is what's going to happen. Do you really want this? And notice here that even though this sounds like, like a bad deal, this is exactly what happens during this time period of Samuel and Israel in the ancient Near East. All of Israel's neighbors in Canaan, their, their kings were guilty of all these harsh practices. And yet, this is what Israel wanted. They wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And look at what happens in verse 18. Read what, what Samuel writes in verse 18. So Samuel concludes with this stern warning then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. And get this, but Yahweh will not answer you in that day. It says in verse 18, then you will cry out. And this verb, cry out, is used a number of times in the book of Judges. This Hebrew word for crying out, it always has a negative connotation. And it's to plead for help and deliverance. It's to plead for mercy. Judges chapter 3, verse 9, Then the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up Othniel for the sons of Israel to save them. So God heard. Judges 3.15, Then the sons of Israel cried out again to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up a savior for them, Ehad. Judges chapter 6, Then the sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh on account of Median. Judges chapter 10, The sons of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you, God, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. So in the book of Judges, over 300 years, Every time Israel cried out to God, God would be moved with pity and he would deliver his people. 
But in chapter 8, verse 18, what God is telling Israel is this. You will cry out, but because of the king whom you have chosen for yourself, Yahweh will not answer you on that day. So Samuel culminates this warning, and he tells and he's pleading with the people, you will regret this decision. If you replace God with an earthly king, all of these things will come upon you, this calamity. And not only that, but you will recognize it, you will come to regret it, and you'll cry out to God again. But on that day, God will not hear. And so what was Israel's response? Well, this is the final section. The final section is Israel rejects God. In these final four verses, verse 19 to 22, let's read again verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us. So by not listening to what Samuel was saying, they were in essence not listening to God, and they discard God's warning and they ignored God's consternation. The verb listen, when it says the people refuse to listen, it can also be translated to obey. And the picture is like a child throwing a tantrum in defiance to their mom and dad. Israel is defying God. And the other thing you'll notice too, even in your English translations, when you read verse 19 and 20, the pronouns we, our, and us appears seven times in the original text. And it refers to Israel's self-centeredness. We, carry, we care about us. This is what we want. We don't care about you, God. We just care about me and us. And the people, in response, they give three reasons why they want a king. Look at verse uh, 20. First reason, that we may be like all the nations. So if, if it wasn't clear back in the beginning of the chapter, it's clear now. This is why we want a king, God, because we want to be like everyone else. We don't, want, we don't want to be holy and set apart for a different purpose for you, God. We want to be like the commoners. We want to be like everyone else. Second, they want a king so that our king may judge us. And so that implies that we don't want you, God, to be our boss. You're not our boss anymore. We want a king to rule over us, to judge over us. So we, don't, we want to be like everyone else. We want our king, our earthly king, to rule over us. So during the time of the judges, God was still king. And in a sense, the judges, even though they had some authority, they were merely intercessors. Remember what Gideon said. It wasn't me or my sons that, that rules. It's God who rules. The, the role of the judge was not king. But Israel wanted a king. And then thirdly, and here is the most shocking thing, Look what it says in verse 20, the, the end here. 
and that our king may go out before us and fight our battles. So the sin here was never just wanting an earthly king. It's wanting an earthly king and thinking that this earthly king can fight our battles, that can give us greater power, that can give us greater victory, salvation than the one true God. And understand here, God had always been the one that fought the battles for Israel. Do you remember that story about Joshua and how during the battle, how God caused the sun to stand still at Gibeon? Do you remember that? The, the, the Bible says there was no day like it before or after when Yahweh listened to the voice of man and Yahweh fought for Israel. But Israel doesn't want God to fight their battles anymore. They wanted to replace God with an earthly king. And what was God's response? God relented. He said, if this is what you want, this is what you get. And Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. And brothers and sisters, each time I read 1 Samuel chapter 8, I come away baffled. Because it's one thing to reject God when you're in a miserable state. Well, when you lose faith and confidence that God is good, loving, and merciful because you're in a state of pain and anguish. I mean, it would still be a sin, but at least to me, it's humanly understandable. But Israel here was at their high point. Samuel had rallied them, delivered them over the Philistines with God's help, with God fighting the battles. And it's at this high point in their history, compared at least to the last 300 years, that they forsook God, they rejected God, they wanted to replace God, they committed cosmic treason. And brothers and sisters, this betrayal of God, it continues today, kids. I mean, some of you in this room have actually not heeded God's warning. And just like Israel, you've refused. Because we know that God made each and every one of us in his image, in his likeness, for his glory. And even though we sinned while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love towards us, right? And that Christ died for us. But if you and I have not surrendered ourselves to God, you and I have rejected God. You know, sometimes when you take a test and you don't know the answer and you have to think, is it true or is it false? And you think if you didn't have an answer that you just need time to think. Well, the way it generally works is unless you've got the right answer, it's wrong. Even if you say, I don't know, even if you don't answer it. There's only two answers to our God and King. It's either we acknowledge him as our king, lord, and master, and we don't. I don't know is the same as I defy God. And so for all of us in this room, especially the kids, don't presume that you have ample time to cry out to God. 
God promised Israel that if they rejected him as for an earthly king, they would be sorry. And there will come a time when they cry out that God will not listen. And so, so for all of us, it's always today that's the day of salvation. And it's today that we can confess to God that we've sinned and fallen short. And it's today that we can cry out that we need forgiveness, a forgiveness that only God can give through Jesus' death and resurrection. Because the story ends in a sobering, somber note. If you do not receive God as your king, God warns you that one day you will cry out, but God will not answer you on that day. So even today I plead with you, if you have not made and acknowledge God to be your king, your master of your life, do so today. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much for these wonderful stories, especially these stories in the Old Testament. And thank you for even giving us this time that we can look at the story of your pleading to your people that even though you are so good to them, that they would reject you. And all of us in this room, we, we enjoy so many of your blessings. You've been through with us our entire lives. And I just pray that every single one of this, us in this room, that you will help us to treasure you, that we would come humbly before you, acknowledging that even though we fall so short of you, that because you are opening up yourself to us because you sent Jesus to die for us and to pay our penalty. We can cry out to you today, and today you will listen. So we commit every single person in this room, adult, youth, and child. We pray that this truth will resound in them and that unlike the people of Israel, they will not reject you, but will hold you as their king. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thanks, guys. So um, just a couple of announcements before you guys go. So for those of you who want to join us for our lunch, uh, the Thaws are hosting us for Mexican food, and this is their address. And uh, next week, we will continue. I think we're going to most likely jump to chapter 13. So if you want uh, to, to read ahead on that and... Um, was there anything else, uh, Bill, you wanted me? Just don't, don't worry if you didn't sign up last week. Um, um, because we're not doing your restaurant, the head count doesn't matter that much. So if you didn't sign up, sign up. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not that if you didn't sign up. you know, So this is open uh, certainly to all of you. And uh, Bill's house is probably about 15 minutes, kind of south on 680. And um, I'll stay here for a few minutes if you have any questions or need a ride. Otherwise, I think the game plan is we're just going to head over there now, right, Phil? Yeah. All right, so we're not lingering here. We're, we're just going to go over now. All right. Do you need a ride? Okay. Because we miscalculated. I thought it was after the cooking hour, like way after, like at like 1 o'clock. Oh, okay. Does your sister? service is going to let me know or let me know. Oh, okay. Okay, does your sister want to come or?